humans. I have a double whammy for you today. I'm going to be publishing two episodes on the same day. Um, I know it's been forever. Thank you so much for your grace while I took some time and space. The second episode I'll be doing today is about bug soup. That will also include some updates about my business and my massive business transformations going forward. I'm so grateful for all of you who listen. But first, I have this very special episode that I just wanted to do a quick intro for. So I don't know if you know, I know last year I published my book, but for the last four years, I have been almost five days a week in writing practice with my publisher. I wake up every single day. It's a part of my practice. We get together and we write as a group. And one of my former clients, now friends, and definitely fellow author colleagues has released her book with Compassionate Mind Collaborative Publishing, who was also my publisher. And I want you to get her book and let it touch your heart. It is a visual and word soulful treat. The book is called Art is About Being Whole. It's a memoir by Cindy Ingram. And listen, this week you can absolutely get it on Kindle for 99 cents. This is um, the live recording of this is Wednesday, November 1st. And so this week it's 99 cents on Kindle. If you do read it on Kindle, listen, get it on 99 cents on Kindle to help her in her launch week, um, just on behalf of me. And... If you do read it on Kindle, I highly recommend like reading it on an iPad or something where you can get it in color. It's very much, um, it, is, it is not just words. It is visuals and art and absolutely stunning. And then if you like and are enchanted by holding beautiful books that are works of art in your hand, I also highly recommend. I got both. <laughs> I got both the... Um, hard copy, which is actually paperback. I got the paperback and the digital copy, and I want to encourage you to do that. I will put the link in the show notes, and I will also link up about Cindy and her work. And I have personally experienced, I'll also link to a podcast that she and I did. Um, I was on her podcast, and we talked about the piece of art called Two Fridas. And this podcast episode is a chapter from her book, and she is reading about the Two Fridas. And I just can't wait for you to hear it. Chapter Two, The Two Fridas. Compassionately, she sits with me, holds my hand, her lifeblood healing. I was split into disparate pieces for much of my life. Girl Before a Mirror revealed two of these parts. The inner me filled with abandonment, sadness, and anger, and the outer me that holds it all in and tries to appear perfect. These various parts of me contradict, leaving me spinning and confused. Despite the inner turmoil, I contain a driving force more powerful than any trauma, a calling, an ambition, a zest for something bigger and grander than any normal life can hold. This ambitious side of me pulls my hesitant parts along, tirelessly pushing to expand and heal. On one side, I have the instinct to hide, cower, and disappear. 
But the driven part does the opposite. She makes bold moves, starts businesses, dyes her hair purple, and travels the world. Whether or not the rest of me feels ready, she whispers, not unkindly, to the melancholy parts. It's time to heal. We have big shit to do. Let's fix this so we can move on. I've always known that my path would be forged by welcoming all the parts of me and coming to a place where I'm whole instead of being split into pieces. Learning to be and accept all I am. From my inner child buried deep in my heart and then out to the edges of my humanity. This is the work. I see my duality in another work that I've always loved, The Two Fridas by Frida Kahlo. In this painting, two self-portraits of Frida sit together on a bench, with navy and white storm clouds churning behind her. We can look at this painting and learn much about the life of Frida Kahlo. We can see her husband, Diego, in the picture in her hand, and her broken heart. Her two clothing choices represent her dual heritage with her Mexican mother and her father of European descent. We can see her pain and discomfort in that stiff posture she lives with daily from the bus accident that caused her lifelong debilitating physical pain alongside her invisible pain of infertility. Remember, I was going to be an art historian. One thing about knowing about the subject of a painting and the artists is that sometimes it brings you closer to our collective humanity. Frida Kahlo painted her story with such heart and intensity that I can't help but find myself in her work. I like to think she would deeply understand my work because she knew what it was like to fervidly explore her own existence, painting around 60 self-portraits, a third of her known paintings. I feel like her artwork was her own quest for wholeness, making sense of who she is, how she fits, how she feels, and what she experiences. When I find myself represented in her artwork, It doesn't diminish her story. It adds to it and her legacy. Her art becomes a beacon for passionate people to find that soul connection that unites two people through art and stories. Frida's art cuts straight into my heart. In her art, she embraces who she is on every level, in her uniqueness, her strangeness. Today, I relish in my strangeness, in what sets me apart. My deep inner emotional experiences, my passion and my excitement, my capacity for radical wonder and deep conversation, my introversion and sensitivities, my desire for a slow evening with my feet dangling over the water, talking about big things with one person, rather than dancing at a loud club with 20, my ability to pick up on the slightest of emotions from just about anyone, and the ability to just know things about people without having to be told. These things that I have now come to know about myself as being major positives in my life, things that make me who and what I am, once made me feel alienated, misunderstood, and ashamed. When I was younger, in my late teens and 20s, I felt hopelessly and utterly alone in this strangeness. Looking at the two Fridas, I wonder if the first Frida, on the left, felt like this, sitting primly in a white, lacy dress, with a stiff collar up to her chin, puffy sleeves, and red embroidered flowers along the ruffled bottom hem. Above her left breast, her heart sits outside her body. The dress around the heart dissolves or is torn away, revealing the skin underneath. The heart is open, but not in a good way, showing white structures inside, which I imagine shouldn't be visible in a healthy heart. Veins come from the heart down to her right hand, where she holds a surgical clamp to stop the blood dripping from the vein onto her pristine white dress. Other veins flow directly from her heart to her second self's heart, which is whole, healthier looking, and brighter. The second Frida wears a gold, blue, and olive green dress, more typical of the Mexican artist's iconic, colorful style. 
She holds a small picture of her husband, Diego Rivera, in her left hand as veins wrap around her arm and into her whole red heart, continuing to the heart of the first Frida. Besides the clothes and the heart's health, there are more subtle differences between the two Fridas. The first Frida's skin is paler and takes on a slightly sickly tone. Her posture is more upright, sitting in a way that looks uncomfortable and forced. My sensitivities prickle when I look at Frida on the left. The dress seems itchy, constricting, and musty. The posture looks painful, and her heart seems to burn in distress. Her open, dripping vein and washed-out skin make me feel lightheaded and cold. Although the facial expressions are nearly identical, Kahlo's classic serious stare, I sense pain and discomfort behind the face of the first Frida. However, her counterpoint seems at ease and comfortable, with her pelvis shifting forward and a relaxed curve to her posture. Audio listeners, I'm interrupting here to tell you that this next part is a poem on the page. The poem is split between the right side and the left, with the painful feelings on the left, like the left Frida, and the aspirational feelings on the right to mimic the right Frida's loving presence. My value was built on the fickle foundation of interpreted comments and overanalyzed expectations, with shame as the mortar, the glue that unites the whole, between not acceptable, I longed to know love, and not enough, I longed to feel valuable. With a body to shrink, I longed to take up space. Thoughts to silence, I longed to feel heard. Shyness to quash, I longed to be seen. Emotions to suppress, I longed to be witnessed. Wonder to quell, I longed for vitality. In the depths of my pain, I longed for comfort. I desperately wanted to be loved in the warmth of my skin, but I didn't even like who I was at home within myself because I was not perfect. But what if the only true perfection is being perfectly me? I really thought that there was no way that anyone could ever like me because I had proof that I drove away a parent, one of the people who was supposed to love me the most, who was always supposed to be there. I knew I was different because I had an example in my own house of what I perceived to be perfect. I have an older sister, Jenny, who was so cool, so funny, so bright, so talented, so talkative, so seemingly confident, so delightfully quirky, and so extroverted. She has her own story of our trauma and how that made her the way she is. I know that my experience of her may or may not reflect how she felt about herself on the inside, but what I saw as a child was someone I desperately wanted to be like, but who I was nothing like. I didn't know what made me different, but I knew I wasn't like her. And it wasn't even like I just wanted to be like her. I felt like I should be like her, that I was broken if I wasn't like her. I felt like an embarrassment to her and my parents because I wasn't like her. And it didn't help that we were sisters, but the nitpicking and controlling big sisters tend to do, especially when they feel responsibility tugging at them. Comments that undoubtedly came from a helpful place within her immediately became misinterpreted and internalized into shame and not enoughness for me. And her bangs were so fluffy and so amazing. I could never get my limp, lifeless bangs to look like hers. Lily King, in her book, Writers and Lovers, says, I squat there and think about how you get trained early on as a woman to perceive how others are perceiving you at the great expense of what you yourself are feeling about them. Sometimes you mix the two up in a terrible tangle that's hard to unravel. And to me, of course, being different when you are young means being an outcast. It means having no friends and not belonging with family. 
So I did all I could to pretend I wasn't as different as I felt. I could feel myself bending into the first Frida's ideal to please and fit. But the problem is that I'm not a good actor or liar. My desire to pretend I am someone I'm not clashes with the inner knowing that I cannot possibly do that without revealing who I am trying to hide. This combination further blended with a natural inclination towards introversion and shyness that led me to completely clam up, turn deep inside myself, and hide from the world. Every social situation became the intricate act of diffusing a bomb or perhaps an open-heart surgery, as reflected in the two Fridas, where each wire, vein, or conversation thread became a threat that could blow up, bleed out, or reveal to everyone that all was not as it seemed with me. Just a slip of the first Frida's hands would release the pressure of that surgical clamp, letting the blood flow from the open vein. I can see this Cindy trying to play the perfect part and trying to fit in in the two Fridas. Like the Frida on the left, I made it my mission to hold it together, trying to appear like everything is okay. But it's easy to see that the first Frida is struggling. Her heart is not fully pumping the blood she needs, and her body is hurting as seen by her stiff posture. Her clothes are not the ones she is comfortable in. Her skin pales as the blood pumps away from her body and takes all of her energy to hold it together. Her thoughts and feelings are all directed towards the challenge of just existing. There's nothing left for joy, nothing left for love, nothing left for peace, nothing left for finding wholeness. What developed slowly throughout my childhood and adolescence and then raged in my 20s were layers of shame upon shame upon shame upon shame. One of the biggest ahas for my years in therapy in my 20s was when I first recognized and named that shame. As innocuous as it sounds now, I had been talking to my therapist about how much judgment I would place on myself for drinking Gatorade, of all things. I wouldn't let anyone see me drink a Gatorade. Because I thought that they would think that I believed that Gatorade was healthy to drink, even though I knew it was just sugar and that water was better and Gatorade was just hype. That Gatorade I wanted to drink represented my failure at health. That Gatorade was why I was fat. That Gatorade was a threat to other people's view of how smart I was. And then, not only am I judging myself for drinking the Gatorade, judging others for their perceived judgment of my Gatorade, but then I am judging myself for judging myself about the Gatorade. It's a never-ending judgment spiral that didn't just stop there. My therapist asked what I thought was underneath the drama about the Gatorade, and the word shame came to mind. I remember immediately feeling stunned by the word and its implications, the undeniable truth of that word, shame. Once I recognized that shame was beneath the Gatorade spiral, I started to view all of my actions and experiences through this lens of shame. Brene Brown, a leading shame researcher and author, defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. I sincerely wanted to be loved and to belong, as we all do at our very human cores, but I also believed deep down that I was not worthy of that love and belonging. I was too much, too controlling too emotional, too rough around the edges, too boring, and too burdensome. And like the dark and stormy clouds behind the two Fridas, shame created a cloud between who I thought I should be and who I actually was. It obscured my vitality, my aliveness. It hid away the things that set me apart from others, the things that truly lit me up and brought me the most joy. 
As I have healed over the last 20 years from this shame, it has felt like unburying the real me. I always knew she was there. I always knew there was a vitality within me that no one could see, that I couldn't really access, but it was there, pushing me along with ambition and adventure. That inner knowing made excavating the layers of shame, one painful layer at a time, worth it. I knew it was there because I saw occasional glimmers of what was underneath. The dense cloud of shame occasionally parted, just as the clouds behind the two Fridas seemed to move and churn, and revealed who I was underneath it all. And when those clouds separated long enough for me to fully embody her, it was sublime. It was taking a big, clean breath of air. It was red, oxygenated blood pumping through my healthy heart. It was the comfort of a relaxed posture and a warm embrace. It was my exterior matching my interior. It was wholeness. In my senior year of college, I had a moment where this real me peeked out from behind the shame cloud. My college years were not the cliched best years of my life. My college years were mostly spent on my landline phone with my long-distance boyfriend, now husband, or alone in my apartment in an old hand-me-down recliner, watching reruns of Friends, playing Boggle on my clunker early aughts laptop, with my only friend Boo, my sweet black cat, curled up on my legs. Any friends I made were short-lived or situational. The glimmer of the real me came during my class, Medici Florence and the Politics of Art taught by my favorite art history professor, Dr. Lewis Waldman at the University of Texas at Austin. To me, he was the epitome of a good teacher. So passionate and animated, he made Renaissance art exciting and intriguing. And even though it was never really a favorite art movement to find, he captivated me with his teaching style. I saw my own passion for art and his enthusiastic tirades, standing up on the tables with his personality lighting up the dark lecture hall as he waved his hands around in excitement talking about what I loved most, art. He loved what I loved and made it come alive, drawing me to his classes. As we were preparing for a test in class one day, he invited students to the podium to lead the test review, a teaching strategy I adopted later in my career. I can't remember if I was randomly selected or if I volunteered. Still, for a spell, I clicked through the slides of the Botticelli's, Bronzino's, and Brunelleschi's in front of the class, asking my peers questions about the content for the exam. This shy girl, who probably had never talked to anyone in that class before, stood at the front of the room and became entirely herself for a few minutes. Had I been told to converse with anyone in that room, I would have flailed in my anxiety and self-consciousness. But standing in front of the class, I became something that had been quietly whispering to me for a while. I became a teacher. Later that day, Dr. Waldman approached me while studying in the art building and said, Cindy, you're a natural-born teacher. Not only had I felt it in front of the class, but it was noticed by someone I admire. That comment pierced through the dense cloud of shame and became a moment I have always remembered. From that point on, this is what I knew to be true. I am a teacher. And I'm not just a teacher, but a damn good teacher. Tears spring to my eyes and goosebumps percolate in my arms as I write these words today, 21 years later. A quick comment to a shy student can send ripples through the rest of their life. It's powerful. Teaching gave me the feeling of connection, of belonging, of love, the feeling of being the right person at the right time doing the right work, the sense of alignment and flow. So I chased those feelings as I continued to teach as often as I had the chance in my college internships and then in art museums 
and later in community colleges and public schools, and then in my business, Art Class Curator, helping other teachers love the craft of teaching with works of art. I would come alive as soon as I got in front of a group of kids or adults. I used to think that my change in demeanor was because teaching was a type of performance. It was putting on a show, embodying a character, and pretending to be confident, faking it until I made it. But I realized along the way that this confidence wasn't an act. As I started to see results of my teaching with the connections that my students made, I realized that I really am a natural-born teacher. I'm good at this. In his book, Bewilderment, Richard Power says, Teaching is like photosynthesis, making food from air and light. It tilts the prospects for life a little. The best class sessions are right up there with lying in the sun, listening to bluegrass, or swimming in a mountain stream. In my teaching, I could feel the full fire of my passion for art and share it with others. I can make a real impact on people. And with that confidence and knowledge, hidden parts of my personality could emerge. When teaching, I could allow myself to be charming, funny, and approachable. I could be excited and passionate without abandon and without fear of overwhelming people. I was safe with the art. I was allowed to marvel and celebrate the delightful without dodging judgment or shame. I experienced firsthand how Dr. Waldman's enthusiasm penetrated his classrooms. So I let my natural enthusiasm emerge. Teaching allowed me to feel whole. This revelation of spirit, this eye in the storm of my shame, began to open up some big unanswered questions. How can I be the vital and at ease Frida on the right while also feeling the intense pain and discomfort of the left Frida? How can I relish in the joy of the teaching moment while also wanting to hide and sometimes just cease to exist? Because as delightful as that break in the shame cloud was, the rest of the time I was not okay and I didn't know why or how to help myself feel better. The year that Dr. Walman proclaimed me a natural born teacher was the very same year that my anxiety and shame overwhelmed me to the point of failing my advanced Italian class. Not because I didn't know the content, but because I couldn't even open the door to go to the class. I can still feel the panic that set in as I reached for the door handle. I felt electric jolts up and down my limbs in that intense fight, flight, or freeze moment. I have to shake out my arms as I write just with the memory of them. These drastic physiological responses stopped me from attending class and sent me fleeing, crying on the bus ride home. Every inch of my body would not allow me to enter that building. Every inch of my body told me that I was in danger. I didn't understand what was happening. It felt so much bigger than just not wanting to go to class. I couldn't breathe at the thought of walking in that door. I didn't understand how someone who spent her whole life priding herself on being a straight A student and being perfect could have taken a fall quite so hard. I knew that socially and emotionally, I was a mess, but I could do no wrong academically. This class tore apart that identity. I really didn't understand what was happening to me. I know now I had a nervous system response, but at the time, I didn't understand what was happening in my body that wouldn't let me into that classroom. I didn't yet even know that anxiety disorders existed. Not only did I fail that class in the last semester of my senior year, but I also failed to officially graduate on time because of it. My self-esteem was so low, my confidence was so shaken, and my shame was so deep that I allowed my whole family to come down and celebrate my college graduation. I walked across that stage 
and didn't have a degree on the other side of that handshake because I had failed my last class. I've never told my family this. And this is probably the first time they're learning it, reading this book. Sorry, mom, I lied. Footnote. Don't worry, mom. I did end up retaking a class at a different university and graduating the next year. Not only was I leaving behind, quote, the best years of my life with no friends or stories to tell, but I drove away from college with no degree, which called into question my whole identity and white-knuckled title as the most intelligent person in the room. Wholly shaken, and at what felt like rock bottom, I started to seek answers. This was in 2002, and the internet was still very young and not as it is today. Social media didn't yet exist, and no brave and vulnerable influencers normalized mental health struggles. It wasn't easy to find answers unless you knew exactly what you were looking for, especially when you had never even heard of the concept of anxiety disorders. What I did end up finding were books at the library about social anxiety disorder and adult children of alcoholics. Opening these books, I had never felt so seen and understood. My fear of going to the same restaurant two days in a row because I didn't want the same person to take my order and think that I was such a gross person that I would eat fried chicken more than once a week. My complete inability to answer the phone. My hiding in fear in the hallway because it has no windows when someone knocked on my door. My going out of the way to avoid even walking by people at the grocery store. My feelings of terror of that damn Italian class. My deep fears of abandonment. My overactive sense of control and responsibility. My stuffing down of all feelings, positive or negative. Suddenly, all of those things became symptoms. Suddenly, it became not that I am broken beyond repair, that I am unloved, that I don't belong. Suddenly, it became a thing that was real, a tangible thing with a name, something I could treat, something I could work to overcome that would lead me to feeling better. And while the awareness of the problem's existence doesn't immediately fix its impact, at least now I had a place to start. I took the discovery of these books as proof that the real Cindy was there underneath it all, holding my hand like Frida, sending me her lifeblood and pulling me forward along my path to healing with her sweet and caring presence. All I needed to do was hold my hand with slow, gentle compassion.